morning. Um, it's great to be with you all. If you would please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And while you turn there, I just want to release uh, those children who will be going up for the uh, classes, for the children's ministry classes. Uh, they can go ahead and be released now. It's great to be with you all and to bring God's Word to you after uh, a few months of gap. What a joy and what a privilege it is. We are going to continue our series through Hebrews uh, this morning. I also want to take one more opportunity to encourage you uh, and exhort you to try and be there for our congregational prayer service tonight at 6 p.m. You'll have an opportunity uh, to hear a little bit about uh, my trip and, and the things I was working on, as well as uh, to meet our new apprentices and to pray uh, for many things in the life of our church. I hope to see you there. Hebrews chapter 7, if you will join me in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, we praise and we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would meet with us in the preaching of your word this morning, that you would... Show us Christ. We come to you needy. We come to you hungry, weary. Help us, O Lord. Behold your Son, our great high priest, with the eyes of faith, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So this summer, I managed to fulfill a long-time goal that I thought would be impossible. Uh, I never thought I'd see the day that I would be able to do this, but it finally happened. My daughters and I learned how to solve the Rubik's Cube. If you haven't seen one, here it is. We learned how to solve that. And this uh, little puzzle apparently has over 40 quintillion uh, different combinations and patterns and you have to know a particular set of moves to be able to solve it, uh, to be able to bring it to you know, one color on each side. And we've tried before, I've tried before, I've looked at this thing, and I thought, how difficult can it be? And I drive myself crazy. And it's frustrating uh, when you see it scrambled and you don't know what to do to get it unscrambled. Uh, I've tried looking at videos on YouTube and the animations and it didn't work out. But this time, there was a difference. This time, we were with somebody, a friend of mine named Andy, who was an expert at solving the Rubik's Cube. And not only was he really good at solving this, he was also very good at teaching us, teaching others how to solve it. And so, you know, he sat with my daughters and I and said, yeah, here's the first layer, this is, this is what you need to do to do this, and then step by step, here's the second layer, and then finally, voila, it's solved. And you know, it was all unraveled, and we began to do it, and we've been practicing, and I got my time down to just under three minutes. They are solving it in one minute, so, uh, and, and I know a lot of people who can solve it much faster than that. But, you know, to be honest, sometimes that's kind of how we feel with our Bibles, isn't it? It's kind of how we feel with the Old Testament, especially you come to certain texts or you come to particular passages of Scripture and it feels like a scrambled up Rubik's Cube. And you're looking at this and say, how do I put this together? How, how do I solve this so that the, the pattern is right and, and I can bring it into resolution? 
Sometimes even life feels like that. But the author of Hebrews is an expert. And we have expert guidance in how to understand some of the puzzles of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. So praise the Lord, this expert, the author of Hebrews, not only solves the puzzle, but he shows us how to solve the puzzle. And when the puzzle is solved, we have a portrait on every side, a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And he is the priest, dear friends, that you and I so desperately need. And so it's my prayer that this morning, as we look at the scriptures, as we see how the Bible shows us our Lord Jesus in his office as our perfect priest forever, that we would be encouraged, that you would have great encouragement to draw near to him so that we would receive the grace that we need when we are needy. Uh, some revision for you, a refresher. It's been some time now since we've looked at Hebrews, the sermon series resuming today. Uh, the context in which this letter was written, it's the, the letter was originally a sermon, and it was preached by a concerned pastor to a congregation of Christians who had grown weak and weary. Uh, they were facing persecution and struggles on every side. They were being persecuted for their faith. The life felt to them like a scrambled puzzle, a scrambled Rubik's Cube. They couldn't discern any pattern to it. And so they began to feel like they wanted to abandon their faith in Christ, for which they were suffering, and go back to the old covenant system, the law of Moses, and feel comfortable there. And what does our author do? Well, he takes them through the Old Testament, solving this puzzle in a series of steps, showing them one of the deepest and richest biblical and theological studies of what we would call Christology, the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we come to the thick of it in chapters 7 and 10, and 7 through 10. Why does he do this? Why does he take us through this study of how the Old Testament points us to Christ? Why does he lift their eyes to the study of Christology? Because, you see, looking at Jesus is the greatest source of comfort in the Christian life. And when things are hard, looking at Jesus is the greatest source of motivation to keep moving forward in the Christian life. And so as we began Hebrews, we saw right from the beginning, from chapter 1, he shows us our Lord Jesus, God the Son from all eternity, who is superior to the angels, who took on flesh to save us from our sin, who fulfills all of God's promises from the Old Testament, who is our high priest. He's talked about that a few times. The one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And here we get to chapters 7 to 10, and he shows us how Jesus is far greater than everything that came before. The theme of chapters 7 through 10 can be summarized in three words. Jesus is better. He's a better priest. He's the mediator of a better covenant. 
He offers a better sacrifice that can take away sin forever. He's the one that we need. He's our only hope. And he begins here by showing us how Jesus is a better priest, specifically a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And this is the moment you've all been waiting for, right? Let's talk about Melchizedek. I had a few people uh, I've met and they were like, oh, I'm getting excited to hear about Melchizedek. Some of you are wondering who in the world is Melchizedek and, and why are we going to talk about him. The author has mentioned him three times so far, earlier in the letter. He's mentioned Melchizedek, but he didn't go into detail. So we were also, I was waiting for him to go into detail so we could talk about him. And at one point he even said, I'm not going to talk about him because you're not yet ready. You need milk and not meat. Well, this morning, brothers and sisters, dear friends, we're going to get meat, right? Melchizedekian meat prepared just for you. And we're going to go through with this expert, the author of Hebrews, as he solves the puzzle, as he takes us through the steps that we need to understand, and he will take us through three steps to solve the puzzle, and then finally, we're going to look at a portrait, right? So as we go through this passage... We're going to answer four questions as we look in this text. Four questions to know what it means that Jesus is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek and why that's so crucial for us, all right? Question number one, first layer of the cube, first step in the puzzle. Who was Melchizedek? Who was Melchizedek? Look at verses one to three. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God, most of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So the author ended chapter 6 saying... Jesus has become a high priest after the order forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now he's telling us who Melchizedek is. And he does so by taking us back in the Bible to Genesis chapter 14, the passage that our sister Snigda read earlier. Genesis chapter 14. And if you know the story there, this sometimes might feel like an obscure passage, Genesis 14, what's going on there? There was a big battle, right? It was five kings against four kings, a truly epic battle scene. And somehow Abraham's nephew, Lot, who had decided to stay in Sodom, uh, gets caught up in this and he gets taken captive and taken away. And then when Abraham, whose name at the time was Abraham, hears about this, when he hears that his kinsman, his nephew, Lot, has been taken captive, he's going on a rescue mission. And so he takes with him 318, 318 of these trained men, the text says. So these guys are the Navy SEALs of the ancient world. They're a commando unit. And Abraham takes his commando unit, goes out, wages war, defeats the bad guys, rescues his nephew, and then he's coming home. And our scene takes place right when that's happening. This happens. Verse 18 of Genesis 14. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, that is, he blessed Abraham, and said, 
Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the author here is showing us a little Bible study now. He wants us to pay attention to the details of the text. What does he say? Who was this Melchizedek? Well, he says he was king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. His name, verse 2, his name is translated king of righteousness. Melchizedek, Melach in Hebrew means king, and Sadiq, Zedek, is righteousness. So he's king of righteousness. He's king of a place called Salem, which if you notice the consonants there, Salem, Shalom, Salam means peace. He's king of peace. And he is a priest of the Most High God. This guy is a king and he's a priest, which is very unusual in the ancient world. It's very unusual for any Israelite reading this passage, actually, because you see in God's law, God appointed the priesthood and the kingship as two entirely separate offices. The priests were all to be descendants from the tribe of Levi, descendants of Aaron. No one else could be a priest. And the kingship was a different office. And anyone who tried to merge these two, if a king tried to take upon himself the duties of a priest, God brought judgment and punishment upon them. So you know the story of King Saul, who was a king who tried to take on himself priestly responsibilities, and God judged him and destroyed him. There was another king later, Uzziah, who took it upon himself to act like a priest, and God struck him with leprosy. But here, before the giving of the law, you have this man named Melchizedek, who's not even a Jew. I mean, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people of the Israelites. And this guy shows up. He's a king. He's also a priest. And the author wants us to pay attention to what is going on here with him. Abraham, the father of the people of Israel, acknowledges his priesthood, is blessed by him. As you keep reading the text, the author calls us to pay attention to the details of Genesis 14, including where Genesis 14 is strangely silent. Now, it's not normally a good habit of Bible reading to look at wherever there's a silence in the text and try to make a jump from that. Where the text is silent, usually we stay silent. But you see, silence is very significant when there's something that is repeated and repeated and repeated, and then you have a sudden silence. That silence means the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us something. Uh, one teacher talks about uh, the Sherlock Holmes story, uh, Silver Blaze. And Sherlock Holmes, as you know, was a detective, and there, there had been a crime committed in a particular house, and Sherlock Holmes is trying to solve it. And what, what he found was that the dog in the house typically barks at night whenever there's an, a visitor or intruder. But the night that the crime was committed, the dog was silent. So for a dog whose habitual habit is to bark, to stay silent means there's something unusual. And then, of course, Holmes deduces that this means that the crime was committed by someone who was familiar to the dog, and that's why the dog stayed silent. Well, here, the author is pointing us out a strange silence in Genesis 14. 
You see, he says Melchizedek is without father, verse 3, or mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. As you read the Old Testament, as you read the book of Genesis especially, genealogies are everywhere. Every single person, every, every major character, every minor character even in the Old Testament, you know to whom they were born, you know who their father is, you know when they died, their death is recorded, their birth is recorded, their death is recorded, their lineage is recorded. That's all over the place. You'll see genealogies again and again and again in the book of Genesis. And so here in Genesis, this is unusual. This ought to strike us as something unique. That the author is trying to tell us something. The author of Hebrews says, pay attention to this. This guy doesn't have any of that. You don't know where he was born or when he was born. You don't know to whom he was born. It doesn't tell us when he died. He just shows up on the scene as a priest, as a king, three verses, and then you see nothing more about him for another thousand years until David mentions him in Psalm 110 verse 4. The end of his life is not recorded. So we see that his priesthood doesn't depend upon genealogy. His priesthood doesn't depend upon a line of descent. He is acknowledged as a priest in the story without any reference to his descent. And the end of his life, unlike so many others in the book of Genesis, in the entire Old Testament even, the end of his life is not recorded. His priesthood in the story, so to speak, just continues. Just continues. And as the author of Hebrews even makes these moves here with Scripture, isn't it of great encouragement to us that every word, every clause, all of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit with purpose and with meaning. Even the silences of Scripture are intentional and the Holy Spirit of God has inspired these authors to give us the words of God, all of it pointing forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's, that's the significance of Melchizedek. Now, of course, some people have looked at these details and said, well, he might be some kind of an angel or some kind of divine being. Others have said, you know, he is possibly the Son of God, Jesus himself, pre-incarnate. It's an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, that might be your view. I'm not convinced, I'm not persuaded of that view, uh, especially because of what the author says next. He says he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. He is made to resemble the Son of God. In other words, this one, this man who was a king priest, points us forward to a greater king priest who will come. You see, what the author is doing, uh, doing here is showing us how to understand Scripture and the way that scripture functions, especially the Old Testament, uh, the study of this we call is typology. I've, I've mentioned that to you before. This is a way of reading the Bible, typology. And it's a way that the Bible is written. And typology simply means that the Lord God in history has ordained and acted in history and in the writing of scripture so that certain persons, certain events, and institutions all form a pattern that points forward 
and tells us about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that for you. Typology is God's acting in history and in the story of Scripture so that certain persons, events, and institutions uh, form a pattern that point us forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you think of an event, think of the Exodus. God's rescue of His people from slavery points forward to God's rescue of His people from slavery to sin through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same with the sacrificial system. The sacrifices, as we'll see in the following chapters of Hebrews, are all meant to point us forward to the perfect sacrifice that Jesus offered. And it's like that with everything almost in the Old Testament. And what the author is telling us is, Melchizedek is like that. His life is a pattern. His appearance in Genesis 14 is a type. He points us forward to a greater king priest who will come, the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. He resembles the Son of God. So this guy's story is recorded in such a way so as to resemble the Son of God, to point us to the greater priest king, who would be a priest not by genealogical descent, but by divine appointment, and who would remain as king and priest forever. So question number one, who was Melchizedek? Answer, he was a priest king who is significant because his appearance in Scripture gives a pattern of another priest king who will come. First step of our puzzle is solved. That's layer one of the cube here. Now we're moving to step two, and this begins to get a little bit harder, right? Question number two, what's so great about Melchizedek? Okay, so there's Melchizedek. There he is in Genesis 14. He shows up and then he goes away. But what's so great about this guy? The author is going to continue his exposition. He, he's going to tell you, he's going to tell us, why do you need to pay attention to this guy, Melchizedek, who is made to resemble the Son of God? What makes him so great? Why is he such a big deal? And he gives us four points. All right? It gets pretty, uh, pr pretty convoluted, pretty thick from verses 4 to 10. Uh, the argument is heavy, but can be understood in four steps, four points. What makes Melchizedek so great? Number one, he received tithes from Abraham. He received tithes from Abraham. Look there, verses four and following. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham. Melchizedek is great because he received tithes from Abraham. So later, in the Old Testament law, when God gave his law for his people, and he installed the priestly office, people from the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Levi had no inheritance in the land. They did not have any allotted place like the other tribes. They were to serve the Lord God as priests. But all of the people were commanded to give 10% of their income, 10% of their produce, all of this, to the Levites. The Levites had this command in the law to receive tithes from the rest of the people. And that was based on their holding the office of the priesthood by their line of descent. What's happening in Genesis 14 
is well before the law was given. And you have Abraham, who is the father of all the Jewish people of the nation of Israel. The text, he said, he calls him the patriarch. He's the one from whom the entire Jewish race came. Abraham is paying a tenth, a tithe, to this guy, Melchizedek. Abraham, in the, in, in the story in Genesis 14, he will have no partnership with the king of Sodom. He doesn't want to enter into any kind of alliance with the king of Sodom. He says, you know, I don't want to take anything from you. But when Melchizedek shows up, Abraham gives him a tithe. Which means Abraham himself acknowledges Melchizedek as a priest. So number one, he received tithes from Abraham. Now some people have asked me, uh, Pastor, does that mean that we have to pay 10% or tithes today? If that's your view, if, that, if that's what you believe, then you're free in your conscience to do so. I don't believe that the command to tithe continues in the New Covenant. Uh, it's not reiterated in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we are told that we must give cheerfully, sacrificially, and generous, generously to the work of the Lord. But I don't believe that the command to tithe, which was part of the Old Covenant law, uh, is in force for New Covenant Christians today. And you're free to uh, disagree with me on that. He received tithes from Abraham. Second, why is Melchizedek so great? He blessed Abraham. He blessed Abraham. Did you see that? Verse 6. He blessed him who had the promises. And then he says, verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So Melchizedek pronounces a blessing on this man, Abram. The one who has received promises from the Lord himself. Abraham, who is in covenant relationship with God, through whom all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled through him and his family. Melchizedek pronounces a blessing on him. And the author says that the common sense implication of that is, he's greater than Abraham. The lesser is blessed by the greater. Now, you know, even as we prayed in uh, our prayer of supplication, uh, we know that there's a new monarch over the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, King Charles III. And he has ascended the throne as king. You know, I want to imagine a picture. Imagine a little boy uh, meeting the king and then saying to the king, God bless you, my son. Yeah, that would be weird. That's, that's just not going to happen, right? It's, it's common sense. That would be funny precisely because it's common sense that the lesser is blessed by the greater. And that's what the author says here. Melchizedek is greater because he blessed Abraham. He received tithes from Abraham. He blessed Abraham. Point number three, his death is not recorded. His death is not recorded. Look at verse 8. He says, in one case... That is, in the case of the Levites, tithes are received by mortal men, men who die. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Does that mean Melchizedek is still alive, you know, kind of like officiating somewhere today? I don't think so. I think what he's trying to tell us is that in the story, his death is not recorded. So in one sense, he kind of lives on, doesn't he? Uh, unlike everybody else in Genesis... His death is not recorded in the, in, in the narrative, which means in, within this story, he kind of just continues. His death is not recorded. It's testified by the silence of Scripture that he lives. And then finally, why is Melchizedek so great? 
Point number four. Since Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, so did Levi. In a sense. In a sense. Right? Verse 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So this follows the principle that we see in the Old Testament and really in the Bible of covenant representation, of headship. The father is the head. So if you go all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 to 3, Adam is the head of the human race. What he does has implications for all of us who descend from him because he represents us. All right? And in a similar way, Abraham is the father of the Israelite people. The Levites are descended from him. So when Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, it is as though, as if Levi himself was paying tithes to Melchizedek, which means that Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the priesthood of Levi. You see that? So who was Melchizedek? We answered that question. What makes Melchizedek so great? He was no ordinary priest-king. He was a priest-king greater than Abraham, which is to say he was greater than Levi, Abraham's descendant. And this, my friends, becomes crucial for the rest of the author's argument, for everything else that he wants us to see. Because the point here is, if Melchizedek was so great, even greater than Abraham, then that means that his priesthood is far, far greater than the priesthood of those who are descended from Abraham, namely the Levites. The Melchizedekian priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And this is vital. You're wondering, oh, why? What's that? So what? This is vital because the people to whom the author is speaking were tempted to abandon their faith in Christ as high priest and to go back to the old system, go back to the Levitical priests. You remember their context. They were under pressure to renounce the faith. They were facing all kinds of persecution. It was hard to be a Christian. They, 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 they're trusting in this high priest whom they cannot see. They're trusting in this sacrifice, and they weren't even there when it happened. Whereas if they go back to the old covenant, if they go back and live again under the law of Moses, it's comfortable, you see. They could go to this grand temple for worship. They see the priests before their eyes in their beautiful garments. They smell the incense. They watch as the sacrifices are performed and the blood of the animal is spilled to the floor on their behalf. And they think, ah, this is good. I can be clean this way. This is better and I don't have to suffer. Now, you know, I don't think anyone here this morning is tempted to go back to the Old Covenant law and Levitical priesthood. But we are often tempted, especially when things get hard, aren't we, to focus on what we can see to rely upon those things that are concrete and physical and we can see with our uh, eyes and touch instead of trusting in that which is unseen, instead of trusting in our great high priest whom we have to behold with the eyes of faith. That is the temptation. And so this concerned pastor is teaching these people 
you cannot go back. No, in Christ, who is a priest of the order of Melchizedek, you have a priesthood that is far, far greater, far, far better. In Christ, you have a sacrifice that truly cleanses you from sin. All of that was just the preview. This is the finale. Going back to the old system would be foolish and disastrous. It's like going to a fine dining restaurant, and then you look at the menu, and then you finally decide what you want, and then you wait, and then the server brings it out, this amazing meal, and is about to place it on your table, and you say, actually, no, 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 take this back. All I want to do is just look at the menu. That's how foolish it is to go back to the old covenant. Which brings us to our third question. The third and final step of this puzzle. We've seen who Melchizedek was. We've seen what makes him so great. And now we see why the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek is better than the Levitical priesthood. Why is it better? Number one, because the Levitical priesthood could not bring perfection. The Levitical priesthood could never bring perfection. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Again, our author here is showing us how to read our Bibles. He moves us forward from Genesis 14 to another key passage, a passage that comes 1,000 years later, which is one of our author's favorite texts, all of Hebrews. It comes up again and again. Psalm 110, the psalm that we just sang. Psalm 110, a psalm of David, begins like this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this is one of Jesus's favorite passages about himself. Uh, again and again in our Lord's ministry, he quotes Psalm 110 to prove that he is the Messiah, to show the Pharisees that the one who comes from the line of David is actually David's Lord. Did you see that? Because David says, the Lord says to my Lord. And this Psalm is speaking of the Messiah, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is a king from the line of David, Ah, but the author wants to call our attention to verse 4. This is his theme verse. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So you can imagine David sitting 1,000 years after Abraham. He's reading his Bible, the law. He's doing his devotions. The Holy Spirit begins to work in him. He begins to pen the words of his psalm and he's talking about kingship. And then he says, yeah, kingship and priesthood are two separate things. Uh-oh, oops. There's one priest who is also a king. Genesis 14. And the Holy Spirit moves in him. The Lord has sworn concerning David's son, the Messiah, the one who would come and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the likeness of Melchizedek. The one who comes will be a king and a priest. And what our author wants to say is, if David is speaking of a priest who is coming, of a king who is coming who will be a priest, then what, you know, 
the Levitical priesthood is only temporary. It cannot bring perfection. If it could bring perfection, why does the Bible later speak of another priest? Do you get that argument? Do you follow his logic there? It's, it's kind of like this. You know, I did a lot of flying this summer. Many of you have had flights home this summer or flights to other places. So you book your ticket, you print off your ticket if you're old school like me, and then you take your ticket and you go straight to the airport and you show your ticket and board the flight, right? No, it's not gonna work that way. What do you get a few hours before your flight? You get an email, you get a text message telling you that you need to check in and that you need to have your boarding pass because it's your boarding pass that's going to get you on your flight and then to your destination, right? Now, if the ticket was enough, why would you need an email telling you that you need to check in and get your boarding pass? Same logic. If the Levitical priesthood could get you to your destination, then why does the Bible speak later of another priest that's coming in the line of Melchizedek. If the Levitical priesthood, that system, if that could bring perfection, what need is there of another priest to be spoken of in the order of Melchizedek? That's argument number one. The Levitical priesthood could not bring perfection. Why is the Melchizedekian priesthood better? Number two, the Melchizedekian priesthood is not established according to a line of descent, but by an indestructible life. Not by a line of descent, but by an indestructible life. Look at verses 12 to 19. For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses has said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So there's been a very significant event this week, as you all know. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, has died, and now her son, King Charles III, has ascended to the throne. She was the longest reigning monarch in British history. So if you're 70 years old or under, then she has been the queen for all of your life. And many have commented on the particular dignity that she brought to the monarchy uh, in how she held her office. Uh, many have commented on her faithfulness and, and what a faithful servant she was to her people. But there was one way that she could not serve her people. There was one inherent weakness that she had. She died. She couldn't continue as queen forever. And of course, you know, the natural line of descent, the genealogical principle... Charles, her son, becomes king. And, and, and I think they've traced the line of succession all the way, all the way down to uh, 14th in line to the throne. I saw a chart that traces this. It's, it's very simple. Nobody can just claim to, become, to be king. We're not going to hold an election to this. Uh, 
So, you know, one of, one of our brothers, Pastor Sam Marrero, is from the UK. He can't decide, oh, I'm going to be king. You know, no, it's not going to work that way. You can't hold an election to elect Sam as the king. It's by a line of descent. It, it, it was the same in the Old Testament with regard to priests, you see. You couldn't just wake up one morning and decide, I think God is calling me to be a priest. No, that's not how it worked. You had to be born in the right family. You had to be born in the line of Levi. But you see, an objection to Jesus Christ functioning as a priest is that he was born in the line of Judah. That was the tribe of kings, not priests. Ah, what the author wants us to see, he holds his priesthood not on the basis of bodily descent, of a law of bodily descent, but by something greater. It's by his indestructible life. Just like Melchizedek, who didn't have a genealogy and was still a priest, Jesus doesn't need a genealogy to be a priest. No, he came like Melchizedek, having life in himself as God the Son eternal, the eternal Son of God. He defeated death in his resurrection. Death could not hold him. And he lives forever, never to die again, functioning as a great high priest forever. He has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So if you ask King Charles, why are you king? The answer would be, because I was born to be king. First in line to the throne according to the line of descent. If you ask a Levite in the ancient world, a priest, why are you a priest? Like Because I was born in the line of Levi. You ask Jesus, how are you a priest? And he says, because I live forever. And because God himself has appointed me. That's, that's the next argument that he makes, that the author makes. Why is the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek greater? Because it is not by bodily descent, but by an indestructible life. It is not merely by a law, but by God's own oath. It is not established by law, but by an oath from God. Verse 20 and following. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So that's the third reason Jesus' priesthood is so much better. He receives his priesthood by an oath from Almighty God Himself. And this is the second oath we see God taking in Hebrews, by the way. We saw in chapter 6 the oath that He makes to Abraham and Abraham's children. Here we see God making an oath to our Savior, our Redeemer, Christ Himself, saying, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. God Almighty has sworn. The Creator of heaven and earth, who cannot lie and who will never die, has taken an oath to establish Jesus as our priest forever. And that means, dear friends, that his intercession on our behalf, his work on our behalf, his promises towards us are assured and guaranteed. Nothing can snatch us out of his hands. Nothing can break the covenant that we are in with God through him. He is the guarantor of a better covenant. He is our guarantee of eternal life. No one can displace this priest Nothing and no one can come in the way of God's plans and purposes which he fulfills. Ask Jesus, why are you a priest? 
God has sworn to me that I shall serve as his priest for my people. And of course, the final argument as to why his priesthood is so much better is he is not interrupted by death, but he continues permanently. Verses 23 and 24. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Those priests were many. Many over here is not a good thing. They were flawed, they were weak, they were sinful, and they died and turned to dust. Jesus is a singular priest. He died to bear the sins of his people, offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, rose from the grave, defeating death, never to die again. He will not die. For those guys, death prevented them from continuing in office. Jesus continues forever. He has defeated death and will never die. And so we see that the priesthood of Jesus in the order of Melchizedek is so much greater than the old covenant Levitical priests. The author has taken us through the steps of the puzzle. Who was Melchizedek? Why is Melchizedek so great? Why is his priesthood better than the priesthood of Levi? The puzzle has been solved. Now all that's left to do is to look at the portrait and to ask, what does that mean for you and me? That's question number four. That's the all-important question, isn't it? What are the benefits of his priesthood for us? Three benefits. Three benefits. Number one, salvation. Salvation. Look at verse 25. Consequently, consequently, because our Lord Jesus is a priest on the basis of his indestructible life, appointed by God with an oath, continuing forever, never to die. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Our great high priest accomplished salvation for us. He is able, the text says, he is able to save to the uttermost, fully, completely, in totality. He offered himself once for all. You see, in the old covenant system, there could never be full and final forgiveness of sins. The, the priests, the sacrifices, all of these things did not achieve forgiveness of sins for us. They couldn't achieve salvation. They reveal our need for a savior, but they don't provide for that need. They all died. It was repetitive. It was useless, right? Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But our Savior, the one to whom that system pointed, is holy, the text says, innocent, 
unstained, not sinful like those priests. They were just like you and me. He's separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, yet able to sympathize with even the weakest of us. And he saves to the uttermost. You know, repetition is not good. I came back from vacation, and the first thing we learned is we have some car trouble. That means I had to drive my car to Musafa. I don't like going with my car to Musafa. There's too many repairmen in Musafa. And the, 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 part of the challenge with the repair, car repair guys in Musafa is you don't know who to trust. And, and you might go to one repair guy and, and he you know, does something and charges you an exorbitant sum and then, oh, it's all fixed, all good. Okay. Then I have to come back again two weeks later. Then I have to come back again three weeks later. Then I have to come back again two months later as Pastor Will is learning. <laughs> but the, the, the repair guy whom you can trust... The repair guy whom you can trust is the one whom you can take your vehicle to and he does the fix and he says, it is finished. No more coming back. Friends, the Levitical priests had to offer those sacrifices over and over and over again. But Jesus offers himself once for all and says, it is done. It's finished. You're free. You're free. And he's able to save you to the uttermost. No matter how sinful you are, no matter how guilty you feel, no matter how weak you are, no matter what you need salvation from. Ultimately, we need salvation from the judgment of God for our sins. You see, we, all of us, are sinners. And we've sinned against a holy God. And we rightly deserve his condemnation and wrath and eternal punishment. But God has sent his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who offered himself once for all as the perfect sacrifice, taking God's wrath upon himself for sinners, extinguishing it, rising from the dead victorious, appointed as our high priest forever. And now the text says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So maybe you're here this morning and you don't know this Christ as your savior. I want to call you, dear friend. I want to invite you and plead with you to draw near to God through him. There is salvation in no one else. No other religious system. No other activity or work that you can do trying to be a good person. No one else can save you but this high priest. And he is able to save you to the uttermost. There is more grace in Christ, as Richard Sibbs said, than there is sin in you. The first benefit he gives us is salvation. Second is intercession. Is intercession. Did you see that? He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, our high priest, intercedes for us. Which is simply to say, Jesus is praying for you. He died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. What's he doing now? What's Jesus doing now? He's praying. Day and night. Friend, no matter what you're going through, no matter how hard it is right now, if you've received a phone call this week that you've dreaded with bad news, 
if you're being tempted in some way that you just feel, how am I going to overcome this? If you're struggling with some sin that you feel like you've been battling for years, if the darkness feels thick in your life right now, I want you to know this this morning. Our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, is praying for you. He lives to intercede for us. I've mentioned this before. Joel Beakey says, think of the intercession of Christ like a clock. And I know some people don't use analog clocks. I'm looking at the clock right now. I know we're going late. Uh, think of a clock. Think, think, think of a, or if you use one of those digital things, think of, think of the, the second's hand of a clock. Or as each second passes on your uh, stopwatch timer or whatever. With each second, remind yourself, tick, Jesus is praying for me. Tick, Jesus is praying for me. Tick, Jesus my great high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, is praying for you. I know the Christian life is hard, but we can press on because he prays for us. He gives us salvation, his intercession, and he brings us third, this is the final benefit, perfection. He brings us to perfection. We saw verse 11, the author said, If perfection was attainable with, through the Levitical priesthood, what need would there be for another priesthood? He, he says it quite boldly and plainly in verse 19, The law made nothing perfect. What does he mean by perfection? He means the fullness and completion of God's plan. The bringing in of all of God's promises, the, the new creation where there'll be no more death and crying or sin. The, the, the resurrection from the dead and, and the consummation of God's heavenly kingdom. Full forgiveness of sins. The old system could bring none of that. But Jesus does. He brings us home. He will lead us into God's perfect kingdom because He has gone there now Himself. And that's how the author summarizes all of this passage in verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints in a son who has been made perfect forever. He has inaugurated the fulfillment of God's promises. He is risen from the dead and made perfect. And his perfection is the promise of our perfection, that we will be made perfect perfect like Him, and enter His forever kingdom. He will lead us home. He saved us from our sin. He intercedes for you even now. And He will lead you home. So this morning as we behold our great high priest, dear friends, I want to call you just as He calls you. I want to see your great high priest standing before you with the eyes of faith, and saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for so great a high priest who offered himself as our perfect sacrifice, who intercedes for us even now, whose priesthood will never end. May we draw near to you in confidence through him. In Jesus' name, amen.